Welcome to The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I am so glad to be able to share a book with you that's uh, sat on my shelf for some time. And I get a lot of uh, experience and wisdom out of it going through it. This is such a good book and such a great author. It's called Serious Times, and the author is James Emery White. James Emery White, he's a pastor. Just to give you an idea, on the front, of course, they have some people that have read it and, and compliment it. Phil Yancey talks about uh, how good it is. I wanted to quote from a person who's president of Union University. He said, in his new work, talking about White now, he's given us not only a thorough analysis of the cultural challenges we currently face, but a skillfully developed response that calls for the church to deepen our souls and develop our minds as we seek to answer the call of our day. And he says this is a serious mandate for these serious times. Uh, somebody else who's the director of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College said, my soul is quaking under the impact of this book. Uh, I like that. It's, and I agree. It just, uh, it's a book that will shake you up and make and, and really throw a challenge at you. So what's he talking about here, serious times? Well, the subset or the subtitle of the book is Making Your Life Matter in an Urgent Day. And we, we're in an urgent day, aren't we? So just a real quick sweep of just generally what the book talks about. He gives a background of how we got to where we are today, a little bit of history, and I'm going to do that today, and then I'm going to come back to this book again and again for future podcasts. After that, he talks about the modern world. And what's it been shaped by? He focuses on three things, secularization, pluralization, and privatization. And he shows what's the, the result of living this way, we end up with moral relativism. We've got this autonomous individuality there, narcissistic hedonism, uh, naturalism that says nature is all there is, and they haven't produced a better world. It's led to all sorts of uh, lack of vision and empty souls and things like that. So we'll get to those. But I thought maybe for today, for this uh, podcast, I wanted to look at his opening chapter. So let's go to that. Oh, by the way, the, the date on the book is uh, 2004, so it should be out there as a used book someplace, uh, but I'm, I'm telling you, it's so good. You want to get one that, if it's used, that it hasn't been marked up, because you're going to want to mark this thing up. It is so good. So first chapter, he starts off, this is actually his intro, he quotes from John Adams, who wrote to Thomas Jefferson toward the end of both their lives. Here's what Adams said, my friend, you and I have lived in serious times. Oh, yeah, no kidding, with uh, the fight with Britain. And uh, he said the Adams and Jeffersons and the Founding Fathers not only lived in serious times, he said, but they led serious lives. They led serious lives. I think that's really an interesting point. And he quotes from an author here, uh, Paul Helm, who says, according to Scripture, the whole of a person's life is fundamentally serious, something for which he's responsible before God and for which he will have to give an account. He is individually responsible to God for what he makes of it. That is really important, isn't it? You want your life to matter. And he tells a story of having seen the whole Star Wars saga, especially the first one, how he thought to himself, wow, that's what I want for my life, to be caught up in the sweep of history, to be, to be in the center of things, to make a difference, to be in part of that struggle of right and wrong and good and evil. And he said, you want your life to matter too. He said, you want to give yourself away to something bigger than you are to make a difference, to change the world. He said, but here's the problem. We, we kind of get lost as we go. He says, we lose that vision of making a difference. He said, 
Sometimes, and this is a nice sentence, he said, we trade making history with making money. We substitute building a life with building a career and sacrifice living for God with living for the weekend. He says, we become saved but not seized, delivered but not driven. Aren't those uh, good words? We become saved but not seized, delivered but not driven. I, I get like that. I know everybody does. You just get caught up in the humdrum of life. But the big picture is we want to make a difference in this world. So let's move ahead here in the chapter. He he says if we're going to understand um, where we are, we need to understand where we were and how we got here. So he calls this the second fall. This is actually his chapter. He said if you want to understand our day, you better understand the day before. So he says history. He said so how do we get here? He said, well, there's been a second fall. The first fall, of course, we know about as Christians. Uh, we read about the, uh, God uh, sending the people out of the Garden of Eden. But he said the second fall occurred when we returned the favor. We kicked God out. So he said, this is a break. This is a huge break. So he says, let's go back. So he goes back to the Middle Ages. He says, during this medieval period, period that the history of Western culture that, that we think of as Western culture, that's when it really began. And by the way, I'm so glad he points out that the medieval era was anything but dark. It was the birth of the university. It produced great writings of Augustine and Aquinas, um, the influential monastic movement. It gave rise to engineering marvels like the great cathedrals and on and on and on. So even historians are not using that phrase anymore of the dark ages. So uh, it was not dark. That was where science got its start. So he said uh, religion wasn't at that time just a way of life. It was the way of all life. It was the culture of the book. And he said in the Middle Ages, that book was the Bible. So that's what he's talking about here. Well, that was the beginning of our culture. Okay, so he said he's not saying we ought to return to medieval Christendom or to glorify. He said that there were many deficiencies, but he said we need to establish where our culture came from. Next section, all right, well, what happened after that? The Renaissance, 14th to 16th century. He said that was the beginning of that transition from the medieval to the modern world of the 17th and 18th centuries. It was kind of turning from the, I guess you'd say, the focus on the world to come to a fascination with the world at hand, taking a look at things around us. And he said from that Renaissance came the creation of what many have called humanism, celebrating humanity. And he said, you know, at first... This humanism today has a kind of a bad, uh, bad uh, connotation. People think of humanism as rejection of God. But he said, no, that when it first came about, it didn't demand or it didn't undermine the well-established Christian worldview. Uh, there was a, it was a Christian or sacred humanism. It was decisively religious, he said, and they and really wanted to renew the Christian church, not abolish it. They said it was only when humanism was ripped from the Christian moorings, and then it became a secular humanism. That's when now you get an adversarial relationship between the humanism of that time and Christianity. Well, the next section is the Enlightenment. And he said uh, that somewhere between, let's say, the mid-1600s and mid-1700s. Just think of this who's who list. Sir Isaac Newton, Leibniz, John Locke, uh, Hume, Diderot, and Voltaire. Somebody said those were the seminal years of modern intellectual history. So a lot of European intellectuals used those ideas at that time about what the world was like and society and the way things uh, came about to start attacking 
established churches, they started questioning traditional views of divine revelation and even, unfortunately, doubting the existence of God, or at least the idea, the Christian idea that God was Father. So this is the rise of modern paganism that came along at this time. So what was the spirit of enlightenment? He uh, refers to Henry May, who said it was basically two propositions. One, the present age is more enlightened than the past. And secondly, that we can understand nature and humanity best by using our natural faculties. So it was basically rejecting revelation or what we would call tradition as being a sure guide. Instead, it was autonomous human reason. It was your reasoning power. Uh, Kant said, dare to use your own reason or dare to know. So for the Enlightenment, it was basically a rebellion against one source of authority, the church and its appeal to God, and it enthroned human reason. So that was the chief thing. So if reason couldn't independently produce or verify something about Christianity, then you don't believe in it. It's, it's false, or at least it's suspect. So he says, yet by the end of the 17th century, the church had been marginalized and Theology ended up being dethroned, and Christian worldview is just a, a fading memory among the uh, smart people of that time period. So that gives you an idea of, of what was going on uh, in the background here. He talks about the most visible manifestation of this shift of going away from the Christian worldview and this secular humanism, focusing on the here and now and ignoring Christianity. He said the most visible manifestation of this was the French Revolution. Well, we know how well that ended, not not well at all. But he said it was a religion of man that got established. Um, it was so de-Christianizing. Uh, Alex de Tocqueville later wrote in France, Christianity was attacked with almost frenzied violence. Now he references an event that took place on November 10th of 1793 at the Notre Dame Cathedral, that huge, wonderful church of France, probably the most famous of the Gothic cathedrals. It was transformed, and now it was going to be called, you ready, the Temple of Reason. And it had busts of Rousseau and Voltaire that took the place of the saints. And during the ceremony, apparently they produced a hymn to liberty. And here are the words, Descend, O liberty, daughter of nature. The people have recaptured their mortal power. That's pretty uh, egotistical, isn't it? Here's some other uh, verses of that. Over the pompous remains of age-old imposture, their hands raise thine altar. Thou, holy liberty, come dwell in this temple. Be the goddess of the French. So he says the second fall was complete. And at the end of the chapter, he says, you know, it's been observed that ideas have consequences. Yeah, they do. So when that Christian world got jettisoned, the context for belief was weakened and finally just removed. God had been silenced and had made ir irrelevant. Humans were their own master. They're on their own now. So he said, suddenly we lived in a disenchanted world. And he said, we are forced to submit everything to criticism and skepticism. And at the end of the chapter, he said, that idea produced the world that we live in now. At the end of the chapter, by the way, every chapter he has a brief uh, bio of somebody that illustrates what he's been talking about. So in this chapter, he ends with the life of William Wilberforce, and we know something about him. Uh, he'd graduated from Cambridge. Uh, he graduated with William Pitt the Younger. He entered the House of Commons, and uh, then he embraced Christianity when he was, let's see, about 
25, 26 years old, and he had just changed the direction of his life. And if he hadn't become a Christian, he wouldn't have been the reformer that he was. And he himself, Wilberforce says, the first years I was in Parliament, I did nothing. He said, nothing, I mean, to any good purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. So it was all about him. But with that new faith, Wilberforce started looking at the horrors of one thing that was around him, that was the slave trade. He stood before Parliament in 1789, and for three hours he poured out his heart and passion, and he spoke about his own pilgrimage. And this is a, these are some of the words that he spoke. I confess to you, so enormous, so dreadful, so immediate did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for its abolition. He's talking about slavery. A trade founded in iniquity and carried on as this was must be abolished. Let the policy be what it might. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would not rest till I had secured its abolition. I said he did not rest for 20 years. He kept trying to get... Uh, the abolishment of Britain's slave trade to happen. And it says another 26 years it took him to get it abolished throughout the British colonies around the world. And it said he was undeterred. It was, there were personal challenges to his health, to his family. He had death threats. There was a war going on. There was prejudice. It cost him the role, probably, they say, of being Prime Minister of Great Britain. But he had such courage. He made such a, a difference in his society. He was so committed to Christ that he saw it through finally, just days before his death. And so at the end of that the little bio, he says, a life given over to Christ saw the flow of history and then gave its life to change it and did. So there you go. You want your life to have meaning, to have purpose. Wilberforce did and made a huge change. So what a challenge to all of us. So that's the first chapter, basically just taking a look at the, the where we came from. And like I said, I want to get back especially to talk about the things going on, how secularism came along and pluralization and privatization and and the results of these things the moral relativism the autonomous individual and we're all on our own uh, the narcissistic hedonism if it feels good do it and the naturalism that came about that nature was all there is and what that has done to us as a society so again the book called serious times james emory white i highly recommend it anything by white I'm on his email list, so I like to read his material on a weekly basis. It's free. Uh, I'm not sure how you check on that. Anyway, just look up James Earl, uh, James Emery White, and he's a pastor at Mecklenburg Church. Okay, well, thanks, and I uh, hope you have a good day.